You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Before we get started on the podcast, I just wanted to come to you guys with a special offer. I teamed up with HuntWise, the makers of the HuntWise app. They make a digital mapping software application for hunters. It allows you to tell the borders of public and private lands, who owns that land, how much land is there. Um, it's great for scouting, you know, new WMAs or public parcels, as well as using the offline features to be hunting deep in the backcountry. And what's best is we have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. If you go to www.huntwise.com and use code HAP10 at checkout, you will get 10% off of the app. Once again, that's code HAP10 at www.huntwise.com. Now let's get to the episode. Speak on the podcast. I'm joined by Bo Martonic. He's the host of the East Meets West podcast. And Bo, why don't you just start out by giving the listener a little context into who you are and maybe why you started the podcast? Hey, Christian. First, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I'm excited to get to talk a little bit. But yeah, so I started uh, East Meets West Hunt podcast uh, last year. It's been only live for a year now and the reason for me starting it all had to do was back in 2016 I decided to plan my first western hunt and I just I read it actually Cameron Haynes's book backcountry bow hunting and it just got me like super pumped up to want to go out west and at the time the only thing I ever saw was on tv you know, with a lot of guys hunting these ranches and stuff like that. And I don't know, I just never was really interested in it. But after reading that book, it just all of a sudden gave me the drive to do it. And I just literally, it was like in January or February, I called up my brother and my cousin. I was like, hey, I want to go to Colorado to hunt elk, uh, backpack style hunt. You guys in? And I don't know why they did it, but they said yes right away. <laughs> and uh, so we so we started planning the trip, and I just was, like, lost in the information. There's a ton of information out there, but for a guy starting out from the east, it's kind of hard to, to get that start and figure out, you know, what it's like. You know, it's easy to get, you know, gear information, all this stuff from western hunters, but they really can't you know, relate a hundred percent to you because they've grown up doing it where, you know, us come from the East coast or Midwest or wherever it is, you know, that's completely new to us. So once I went on this trip, like it, I did a seven day uh, backpack hunt and uh, a wilderness area in Colorado. I was just like, I, I didn't kill an elk. None of us killed any animals, but that experience was was so I don't even know how to explain it but it was so awesome that like 
well, first of all, by the end of the seven days, I was so wore out and I was like ready to go home. But like three hours in the drive home, I was ready planning the next one. Like I couldn't wait yeah. to get back out there. And that just like, I realized then I was kind of hooked. But so when I, I came back and the whole time I was kind of taking notes down um, about the trip day by day, kind of what was going on, what I was experiencing. And I just like wrote it all into basically like an article form and I submitted it online to this uh, online magazine called the Journal of Mountain Hunting, their Canadian based company. And when I did that, I just as a subscriber story, somehow they decided to run the article and I titled it East Meets West. And when I did that, uh, and I just shared it through my Facebook and Instagram. You know, I, I got a little bit of feedback from people being like, oh, man, I wish I could do that. Or, you know, I don't have the money like you do, which was completely inaccurate because I <laughs> didn't have any money and still don't. But <laughs> I was like, I, I was just like, no, like that's, that's you know, not the case. And they're like, oh, or the time or I don't know how to do this. You know, I don't money for guides. And I was like, there's a huge gap in information here. And the editor, Adam Yonke, over there at the Journal Mountain Hunting, uh, reached out to me a few months later and was like, hey, would you like to write some more stuff from an Eastern perspective? And I was thinking, I mean, I'm not a writer. How, you know, how am I supposed to do this? And I just, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, and started doing that and kind of, I realized that there was a, a big niche there of people wanting that information from the East and the Midwest. So it, it, the podcast was something I always had in my head for quite a while. And it took me probably about a year and a half before I pulled the trigger to actually do it and got the confidence enough to do it. And so I basically, the, the whole podcast after that long-winded story is all about trying to help people find adventure through hunts. And started out with the mindset of helping people plan Western hunts, and it's still a big part of it, but also showcasing the experiences that we have throughout the Appalachian region that goes the whole way up the East Coast. And there's so many opportunities there for, you know, you can make your own type of adventure hunt. You can backpack hunt. You can just camp out or rent a cabin or stay in a truck or or just go on a weekend trip. I mean, whatever it is, you can find those experiences in the East as well. Yeah. So it's hard to showcase in some of that stuff. No, that's, that's awesome. I think that's a, I mean, that's a great message. I I can definitely resonate with it, especially being from Oklahoma. I mean, we're kind of in that weird niche of like, you know, not as good as Kansas, not as warm as Texas and, and not as West as Colorado. So we've got, we've got decent hunting and it's getting better and better. But I mean, I think this is worth diving into a little bit just from my perspective, because I'm, it's funny you say that I'm planning my first over the counter archery elk hunt this year. And I'm seeking, you know, a ton of knowledge through articles, you know, podcasting. I know you had Corey Jacobson on. I've listened to Randy Newberg all the time, like just super knowledgeable guys. But what is the number one thing or maybe a couple takeaways you would give to someone if they came up to you on the street and said, I want to try my first elk hunt in Colorado this year. What do I need to do to be successful? I know you weren't successful in your first hunt, but what do you think you could have changed to make it successful? So I guess the first thing I would tell them 
is to put it on a calendar and commit to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the biggest part in someone not being successful is them just not doing it. So I think that's the, the first thing I would say. And the other thing that I would say as far as like trying to put the odds in your favor that the best that you can is is taking in as much knowledge as you possibly can through those resources but at the same time not overthinking it you're there's not like any like short uh i guess road or trip to success with it Mm -hmm. it's getting out there and trying it and going through those learning curves and if you are a whitetail hunter I mean, you can use a lot of the things you learn while snow hunting, but for the most part, throw it out the window and <laughs> realize that, well, especially when it comes to elk hunting, you know, you're going to need to be a lot more aggressive and not as patient and there's, you don't need to worry about scent control and all this other stuff that you, you know, you kind of look at from a whitetail perspective. So it's, it's keeping an open mindset, putting it, putting it on the calendar, committing to doing it and preparing yourself the best you can through research and then talking to people. Now, what what did it look like in terms of encounters? How close did you get? Um, any close calls or missed opportunities or anything like that you could speak into? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, it was funny. So I, I had went through uh, Corey Jacobson's course at the University of Elk Hunting, and they, they teach you a lot about how you did, how to use like Google Earth and Onyx Maps to scout. And, you know, he said a lot about elk bedding on north-facing slopes. So in the dark timber that's normally on a north-facing slope, it provides a cool area for them to bed through the midday. And so I went and I marked all these things on a map um, ahead of time and had it over on my GPS of places potential bedding. And the first night when we hiked up in there, I sent a a bugle off into this canyon uh, like with north facing slope on the other side and had an elk bugle back to me right from that bedding area and I was like that was so cool to be able to kind of <laughs> you know pinpoint that from 2,000 miles away which you know I think more of it was luck than anything but in, but if you put you know the time into kind of you know investing yourself with some of that research and learning you know, you kind of create your own luck there. So that was like my first like bugle that I heard. Yeah. And then throughout the, the rest of the trip, I got into, or we got into a bunch of bulls. I think we had a couple other encounters that were close. And if I would, if I would have known more at the time, I would have had shot, shot opportunities, but I just completely screwed them up when I got close. I wasn't aggressive enough. I didn't run in on them like I should have. And, you know, that just, you know, screwed me up there. I didn't, it, there's one thing like, so the one encounter I can think of off the top of my head was this elk was a little bit ahead of us. And, and, and I think that, that one of the cows might've seen us and it started going up over this mountain there. And we were trying to call it from behind it where to really, you know, have a good chance on I needed to get on the same level as them and come across the side hill rather than from below them mm-hmm. and, and because I mean at that time of the day the mountain thermals the sun is heating up the hillside so the thermals are going up and they're going up the hill and they're probably when they probably winded me well before I was out of the game before I even knew it 
So yeah, I mean, so that, that was that was just like that. Just having those experiences were just like I. I it's so hard to put into words. Yeah, I mean, I just think about it. You know, whitetail hunting, sitting. I went on my first antelope hunt this year with an with a bow, and it was honestly just just the western style spot and stock hunting is just such a culture shock from you know from a midwest or an eastern perspective of just you know usually waiting yeah no that's what's that's i mean there's a lot of different you know techniques with it you can do some glassing and but it still you know revolves around spot and stock at that point which is you know pretty different from whitetail hunting but it's yeah it's a whole different whole different game and it's it's fun though like it's just so different that it's you know a lot of fun and and I, I don't want to at all come off as sounding like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to to killing an elk. I'm not, definitely not the person to do that, but I can tell you how to screw up a thousand encounters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can at least speak <laughs> into what you've you've experienced. I mean, what did yeah. the what did the progression look like as far as like you know learning how to bugle and learning how to cow call and like what were your what were your experiences with your, you know, your new calling in, in that environment? How did that work out for you? I know you talked about getting one bugle. Is there any other experiences you could talk to? Yeah. So I, that's one big thing. Like if you're going to try the calling strategy, which can be extremely uh, productive during the rut, if you're going in that like middle part of September, it, it can be really effective, but you got to be practicing with it a lot because that was a huge mistake that I made was, well, one, I, I, you know, turkey hunt a lot and, but I never was good at using mouth calls. I just always, uh, killed my turkeys with other forms, slate calls and box mm-hmm. calls and everything else. Just never really got in using mouth calls. So that was new. And then I thought I had it figured out and thought I was good until I got out there and realized that like, when I was out of breath from hiking or doing whatever, I couldn't make the same sounds. <laughs> and so it took, it took a lot more practicing to make it almost create this habit like you would when you shoot a bow, you know, so then when you get in the moment of truth, you can execute the shot the same way it applies to calling. And so that progression is one that's still in the works, but uh, definitely has improved from the first time. Yeah. So what, I know the number one deterrent of people, you know, doing this Western style hunting, and I've already seen it in my own family with, you know, family members that maybe should be in more, better shape that aren't, that can't go do these things. How big of a, of a role was fitness in this hunt and how did you prepare for it? Yeah. So I mean, you don't need to be in great shape to kill an elk, but I can promise you, you'll never wish that you were in worse shape because there, I mean, there's guys that get it done every year that are not in shape, but if you are in the best shape that you could possibly be in, it, it 100% increases your chances of success. Just especially if you're, you know, going day after day after day, your body's wearing down, your mind's wearing down and the better physical shape that you can be in, uh, I truly believe it ups your chances. So like, I mean, you're coming from Oklahoma, and I'm guessing it's it's pretty flat where you're at. Uh, yeah, it's it's decently flat. I actually just moved out of Oklahoma to Texas, but I've I ha- but I haven't got to hunt Texas yet. So yeah, mostly Oklahoma. 
so like but even anywhere throughout there's not like a ton of uh elevation gain to be able to you know practice hiking in the mountains and doing all that but so there's there's different gym workouts you can do and things outside even if you're in in flatland environments to be able to help you with that and like the core muscle groups you need to focus on is definitely your legs your core your back and your shoulders those things are by far the most important part you know you you can do curls for the girls but that's about all you're (laughs) going to get out of it and yeah and i mean i i like full body you know workouts and everything and i i do a little bit of everything but the majority of the what i've found i i used to be really big into lifting weights and just and that's just what I did in college and everything else, but I didn't, it wasn't purpose built for hunting. So I realized that getting your legs strong and be able to have muscular endurance, so being able to move weight, you know, over a distance with, you know, for a long period of time was important. So a lot of that came down to putting a backpack on. I'd load up um, sandbags. So how I would load the sandbags, I got these dry bags they're called like that you'd use for like rafting or anything mm-hmm. i think seal line is the manufacturer that i use and i believe it's a 30 liter bag holds 50 pounds of sand and a 20 liter bag holds 30 pounds of sand load it in there seal it up nothing can come out put it in your backpack and hike you know whether it's starting out on flat ground get yourself in you know shape with it and then i, I built myself a little step up box so just use some two by fours that are screwed together and then put a plywood like a either plywood or osb top on it and made that about 16 inches high and would just step up on it and step back down step up and step down it's an extremely boring workout (laughs) but it will it will pay dividends i think that's a huge thing that like i've been able to do that's helped me out and in addition to that you know, recently I've been uh, I've been going through this course, this Mountain Tough Fitness course that involves a lot of high intensity workouts. So you're doing your traditional squats and your step ups and and uh, a whole bunch of core workouts, but you're doing it with little to no rest in between to keep your heart rate up mm-hmm. and you know build that muscular endurance as you're going through it. So you're getting stronger but also getting endurance all in the same workout. And maybe they'll have you do sprints in between sets and different things like that that you can do from anywhere in the country to help prepare you for it. Yeah, that sounds like some really functional fitness. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a good way, a really good way of putting it. No, I mean, I've... Uh... I've tried, or not tried, I'm currently running uh, to get ready for Colorado, and I know that will help a little bit, at least, in terms of cardio and not being as out of breath, but you just can't replicate the mountains. I mean, the step-up sounds like a great idea. I mean, I'm going to run well over 100 miles in, in preparation, and then I'm going to get on the you know, the first 10 steps on the mountain. It's going to feel like I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> so the one thing I would like comment on, running running is really good and definitely helps your cardio and helps your lungs get in shape but unless you have some sort of hills or anything involved in that it's it's still going to be it's you're, let's put it this way no matter no matter what you do to get better and better shape it's going to help you 
but I truly think like adding something in, like step ups within the running mm-hmm. would really would really help you out with a pack on and get used to putting that on and weighed down. I, I remember the, when I first got to Colorado, my first year we pulled off at a rest stop, and the rest stop was around ten thousand feet. I went to walk to the bathroom, and I was out of breath walking because of the elevation <laughs> and you know the altitude is something that you cannot prepare for you yeah. know it's it's it still takes the breath out of you but i was like oh geez like this isn't good you know i'm looking at the, the mountains i'm like man they're a lot bigger than google earth showed me <laughs> exactly so, they, they all look flat on google earth <laughs> yeah you just, yeah they're like rolling hills I, I remember looking at the maps the first year and me and my brother and my cousin are sitting here. We're scouting, and we're like, "Oh man, we'll we'll go here this day, and we'll go over to this one, you know, later in the afternoon, and over to this knob, and all this stuff." And then we got there. We're like, "That's gonna take us two days to get to the first one." <laughs> exactly. Like, it just it, it was crazy. No, that's awesome. I mean, I am I am definitely excited about it, but I'm I'm definitely ready for culture shock too. And I don't know. It's just. I just even going to Colorado for skiing and, and for vacation and stuff, man, it's just, there's something euphoric about being out in the mountains. Yeah, no, that's, it's, I, I've never, that's, that's great. You've been there before. That's like a big help. So you understand kind of what it looks like. Cause I, I was never there before. And, um, yeah, that was a wake up call. So what, a what's been maybe not your feedback, but, have you have you uh has the podcast that you started has it grown faster or about on pace or for what you thought it was going to be? Um, it actually grew quite a bit faster than I expected. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what to expect, but um, when I started it, I, I literally like I said I had no idea what to expect if anybody was going to listen or what it, or anything. You know, to some guy from the east that hadn't had any success out west like from a killing standpoint from a filling tag standpoint and it i felt like a lot of people could relate to it and that's why it grew at the pace that it did and it's it's uh it's consistently grown and i i, I can't be you know more thankful for that and it's just there's a ton of people that you know want that information and it was just a niche that that i kind of found there yeah no, I mean that's awesome. I've seen you. You've had some really, really cool guests, and you know Corey Anderson, Corey Jacobson, um, the Go Wild CEO Brad. I mean, I've I've had Brad on the podcast too, and he's actually he's a really cool dude. But I mean, can you speak to what what's been some of your favorite conversations that you've got to have? Um, well, any anything with Corey Jacobson is like mind blowing. Like that guy just knows so much about elk and. And he puts out so much information that I didn't know, you know, if I'd be able to get anything else out of him. But somehow he still pulls something out mm-hmm. that, you know, I hadn't heard before. And so any conversation with him is really good. Um, I've really, I, I've enjoyed, you know, a lot of different people. And and one of the other ones that comes to mind is whenever I talk to John Barclow from Sick of Gear, I, I geek out on on here from a standpoint that I, I love you know figuring that stuff out and how things work with you to kind of make it uh you know more comfortable in the field and also just figure out how your body works with the gear to 
to make it more efficient. So anything with him has been really fun. And in addition to that, uh, one of my buddies who has zero to do with the hunting industry whatsoever, uh, his name is Johnny Stewart, but he's a, a white-tailed freak. Like, this guy's hunted all over the country on public lands before it was, you know, cool to do so. And he lived out of his Jeep for months. Like, he would leave. He worked at excavation and still does. Before he worked for himself, he would basically tell his boss, he's like, hey, I'm, you know, I want laid off in the fall, and I'm not coming back until I kill deer and a buck in every state that I go to. Oh, and wow. And he did that. And so, like, when I interviewed him, like, he just threw out so much knowledge, and he doesn't even take in a lot of hunting content. So it was great to, you know, hear his views on things that were, like, not influenced in any way by, you know, things he read or saw or listened to. And it was just some really off-the-wall tactics that that I think the listeners really um, enjoyed because it was just different. Mm-hmm. And it's been some of my most downloaded podcasts were with him. And like I said, he has you know nothing to do with the hunting industry. He's just an absolutely just awesome hunter. That's awesome. I mean, so, I mean, that's super cool that you've got to even talk to the one of the guys at Sitka because, I mean, for me, Sitka kind of changed a lot of, of what I, how I view hunting in terms of gear. Because, I mean, before it was like, you know, the $7 pants from Walmart and, you know, the nice, <laughs> the nice button-up shirt from Walmart. And it was like, you know, digging into your crotch. And, like, they were just extremely uncomfortable. And, and I go and I get, you know, a full system of Sitka. And it's like wearing pajamas out there. Like, it's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so funny because, I mean, I, I did that all the way up until 2013 when a friend of mine talked me into buying some new Sika gear off him. Like, I was not I was not bought in on the idea. I had these old Army BDUs I picked up at, a, like, a Army and Navy store. Like a surplus and, store? <laughs> yeah, like a surplus store. Yeah. And so I had some BDUs there that, that um, they were just all cotton soaked water and like crazy super baggy at the time at the bottom and like and like almost like parachute pants and and, <laughs> and just like all caught and everything and i always wonder i'd walk in and my feet would get cold i'd get you know soaked in sweat and i'd never dry so i was always cold and until i realized how when you use like a, a system like Sika that's with moisture management and being able to, you know, move moisture through your system, that just completely changed the game for me. And I, I don't like to say, you know, gear is a game changer in anything, but it it definitely helped out. I mean, when you want to go out and you only have so many days off of work to hunt, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you want to make them the best you can possibly have, and if I can sit in a tree stand all day, every day for my seven days off, then that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was kind of the sell for me too. It's just like keeps you out doing what you enjoy longer. And that's so, that's so true. You know, getting cold, like the big thing for a big thing for me was the layering in terms of getting it off, you know, like you, you, you wear a jacket or a vest over a jacket, take the vest off, take the jacket off. Then you're down to like a moisture wicking shirt. Like before, 
man, I was wearing a t-shirt and then like the biggest hand-me-down jacket I could wear. And it was like either freeze out or, you know, sweat, (laughs) sweat all your, all the water out of your body. So, I mean, just having that system has really changed it for me. And I feel like it's really going to change it when I go really going to continue to impress me when I go to the mountains. Oh yeah. I mean, cause you're constantly, okay. You start off in the morning, you hike, say you're even camping at the truck, you're hiking in to an area. It's like close to freezing a lot of times in the mountains that time. So it's cold. You might have a, a little bit of layers on as you're hiking, as you hike and hike more, you get hot, take off a layer. And then you, you know, as you're, it gets warmed up, you might be down to your base layer and then it starts to chill off a little bit later on. You throw that layer back on. And you can do that in just a few layers that are extremely lightweight. I remember before, I, you know, I just wanted that heaviest hunting jacket possible. Like that yeah. Was what I, you know, the heavier it was, the better it was, I thought. Yeah. And that's, you know, definitely not the case. I, I remember the first time I brought uh, a Sika vest with me. It was an old, one of the original Kelvin Light vests with me to a uh, hunting cabin in Ohio that we were renting to hunt. A piece of public there with my dad and some of his friends and his friends looked at that and they're like it was so lightweight this puffy vest they're like i would they go if we found this in the woods i just leave it there like this doesn't do <laughs> this wouldn't do anything you know, I'm like, right no, it's not you know that's you know until you know now it's just about you know everyone's wearing at least something you know sick and i i always stress people because it is super expensive and it is an investment to start off with base layers because that if you just start with a jacket it's not going to do you any better than any other jacket if you don't have the right base layers so starting off with that first and then you know kind of building off of that platform and and if you think about it from an investment standpoint your hunting clothes are on you all the time when you're hunting yep you know you might use your bow once or twice a year you know everything else but having that uh, the clothing is is really important to me and that kind of when i started wearing sicka i started getting like super you know into it and the research and i i always dive way too deep into things and when i was doing that um i ended up moving for a job down to the pittsburgh area and got hired in archery shop part-time after my day job and they were a sicka dealer Oh and no! I just became, <laughs> yeah, I just became, oh, it was terrible. I didn't make any money whatsoever. <laughs> Working for free. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I did. I worked for free for three years because I just traded in for gear. But like, so I just dove into learning it. And Sika trains all retailers, anybody that works for one of their dealers. Like, you have to go through a class to even be able to sell it. Mm-hmm. And so like i just got so into it that you know they considered me the sickest specialist on site and anybody that came in to build systems from white tails to sheep hunts you know i was the, the one that would sit there and help them build their own system based on you know do they run hot or cold do they sweat a lot do you not sweat a lot you know all those things matter in building the system for you and it, it can be a little bit confusing with how many options they have but if you take the time and you know, go into a pro shop or anything like that. If you have one near you to talk to someone knowledgeable to help you with that, it's, it's really important. And that's what, when I had Barclow on the podcast, we dove into from beginning to end how to build a system. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, 
I've got I've nerded out on the technology side of it and like just functionality of it. I've got the the matching bino harness like just watching like people like John Dudley like use it like when he goes out with Joe Rogan like having your rangefinder right there having your binos on your chest and not clanking. Um, I even have I have this hat dude. This this one hat that I have has changed like the way that I view all kinds of hunting gear. Like I bought this one hat from Sitka. <laughs> well, I didn't buy it. It was a birthday present. My fiance's mom was like, I want to get you something nice for your birthday. Like, what do you want? Well, I've been getting Sitka for like the last five years for my birthday. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get this Sitka hat. It's a $70 hat. And I was like, there's no way that they can make a hat that's worth $70. I was like, I'm because I'm trying to find something that's not as valuable as it is on their website. Like I know they have a pair of $500 bibs, but I bet, I bet every penny that they're worth $500. I don't know how you can make something that's worth that much, but I, I know that they are. And this hat, uh, <laughs> this hat is waterproof. I mean, it's literally like a waterproof hat. Like I go out, everything drips off it. And it's the most comfortable hat that I've ever wore in my entire life. And like, I, I wear it as my casual hat now, but man, just long story short, it's just, yeah, I, I could talk about that for hours, but the gear yeah. is, is legitimately, it's incredible. And for anyone that's listening, I don't have a discount to Sitka, but you you should definitely go check them out anyways. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Like that, that was one of my biggest perks when I did work at that shop was I was so pumped to not have to pay full price for a little bit on Sitka because we, we did get a discount and it wasn't, you know, any secret that, places you know that that work there do and but it didn't matter because i just bought twice the amount of stuff yeah which <laughs> yeah, i still spent a ton of money on it and uh so that was that was really cool and you know that working at that shop allowed me to go to a lot of events and meet people mm-hmm. and you know that's how i met john barklow years before i started the podcast and it made it easier you know once i started this to reach out to people because i had met them you know, prior and, you know, going to different events and just talking to people with no, no agenda in mind. I wasn't there trying to get a discount or do anything like that. Just meeting those people, you know, really helped me out in the long run. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. Especially having relationships with people like that. I know a lot of people punk on Sitka, but man, that's, they're changing the game and that's, I mean, that's awesome, dude. What a, In terms of one thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I think this is apart from, you know, the layering and the outside system that you're wearing, I think maybe even more importantly is the boots that you wear for, for hunting in them, especially out West. What, what kind of boots did you wear that allowed you, um, to hunt in that environment, you know, for a week plus, because I know the first time you get a blister or the first time that you're wearing your muck boots and they start wearing you wrong, it's going to be a long, long week. Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that because when when I you know recommend gear to people and where you can cut costs and where you can't, there's two things, and I'll even give a third one on there that I would not skimp out on on a western hunt. First and foremost, your boots. That's what you have on your feet the whole time. Second is a backpack, a good backpack, and third would be your clothing layering system. But when it comes to boots everyone's feet is different and it's so tough because i don't know how it is where you live but over here we don't have any places you can try on that kind of stuff no we don't either but yeah so that's what's super tough so if you can find a place to buy it that offers free returns 
and you can, you know, if you're able to put a couple of the boots on your credit card for a little while just to get them in and try them out, walk around the house with them, and that makes a huge difference. But for me, what fit my feet the best, I've um, had some problems with I sprained my ankle before, so I need something a little bit stiffer. And I bought these boots called Loa Tibet's, and they're almost like a, a mixture between like a mountaineering trekking boots. So they're kind of stiff. They almost feel like when you first walk in them, like you have space shoes on or like uh, ice skating or anything. Like, I mean, ice skating or not ice skating, um, like snowboard boots. Like it just, it feels really clunky. Feels weird. Yeah, it feels clunky. And, and eventually you break them in and you get used to them. I don't notice it anymore. But at the time it was like, wow, these are weird. But you're side-hilling a lot, so you need a stiff boot. You know, you need something that fits your feet really well, not just okay. And something with a good sole on it that can hold up to the rocks and everything else that you're, you know, dealing with. And that, that for me, I've had that same pair of boots, which I think it cost me around $300, which I've never spent that wow. kind of money on boots before. But... Now that I did it, I've had these boots for over four years, and I, I have thousands and thousands of miles on them. Between I wear them for whitetail hunting now, I wear them for out west, and I wear them for shed hunting. I wear them for everything. Like those boots are my lifeline, and yeah, I just take care of them. I condition the leather with the cream that they provide, and I re-waterproof them and everything else. So, you know, a good good Gore-Tex is really important but it's got to fit your feet because the boots i have a friend of mine got the same ones and he hated them because his foot was shipped uh was shaped differently and he got blisters mm-hmm. where i didn't you know and so it, it all depends on your foot which it's super tough with not being able to try them on at places you know locally yeah no that definitely does make it tough i mean what's your what's your plan for this year you got any western hunts planned yeah, so this will be the first year I'm I'm leaving Colorado and I'm heading to Idaho to hunt elk uh, again and going to a little bit different area, a mixture of terrain, some open country, some dark timber, and it's really steep mm-hmm. where where it's going to be at, which is similar to where I was at in Colorado. It was, was really steep, but I um, the one cool thing about Idaho. It's got a longer drive, which sucks. I mean, the drive <laughs> sucks. But uh, I am able to get a mule deer tag over the counter, which that mule deer tag can be used for a predator as well. So you can use that mule deer tag on a black bear, a wolf, or a mountain lion. Oh, if, wow. Uh, that, that presented yourself. Presented That's yourself. awesome. That's like five tags you're going to get. Basically, yeah. I mean, once you use that, you can't reuse it. But right. it's, it's just... That's awesome. Like, uh, you could actually do that with your elk tag too, but you know, I'm saving that elk tag for just elk. But um, the deer tag is kind of like I'm considered like a bonus tag. Like, you know, whatever else I encounter that uh, you know, like that would be you know, uh, make it worthwhile, fun, and and I I really want to shoot a bear in the mountains and and I mean, bear meat gets a bad name sometimes, but I think it's extremely good. Especially mm-hmm. the ones that feed, you know, in the, the high alpine basins and on berries and grasses and everything else. Yeah. No, that's a that sounds like a great hunt, man. What what time of the year are you headed 
Like, are you headed in September? Yeah, I'll be going to September. I'm going to go, like, towards the third week of September this year, where Mm -hmm. in the past I've went, like, the first couple weeks, and it could be hot and and bugling spotty. So I'm going to try to hit a little bit more in the middle of the rut, um, which can be tough when the bulls have a harem already, which means, like, uh, they have a bunch of cows that they've gathered up throughout the the pre-rut and everything. But I I feel like in my mind that there'll be more um, rutting activity, more bugling, just more fun, what I'm looking for. Yeah. I mean, I'm going in the first week of September. So what do you think that would be like in terms of, you know, bugling or, you know, not having cows already? Or what do you think that would look like? So that could be hit or miss. Like last year, I went I went from September 1st through the 14th. And that first week, I never heard a bugle, but it was super hot and dry. Yeah. And I've heard other people that have had such good luck that first week saying that you get some bugling action, not a ton, but some as it's starting to begin. And if you get one to bugle, they're a lot easier to call in because they don't have all those cows with them yet and they're just they're getting ready looking for the first you know cow to come to heat and but also like if you have an area where you can glass you can find them on these feed patterns you know earlier on and they're, they might do the same thing day after day whereas you get later into september they just kind of following the cows wherever it could move four miles the next day yeah no i mean that's some that's some good advice and i've actually heard of people um, like sitting and waiting once they see them go out to feed, they'll wait for them to come right back like all day in the bedding area, which I mean, I think is, is cool. And that's still elk hunting, but man, I really, really want to interact with them kind of like you do with a turkey. Yeah, no. And, and that can be an effective topic. And I mean, a tactic, I mean, I, I remember when I was, I was talking to Barklow on the podcast there, he was telling me, cause I, yeah, I was just i'm so ecstatic about like bugling bulls and calling them in aggressive and he made a good point to me he's like you gotta hunt the elk the way that they are you can't make them do something they don't want to do and if it's early on in the season that means sitting over a watering hole or a wallow if that's because they're coming into that you do that or if you find a um like a saddle that they're coming back over from feet on one side to the north facing bedding then you sit there you know you got to do you know, whatever it takes to, to be successful with it. But there's there's a ton of different tactics out there that can work. And you'll you'll find out, you know, what doesn't work and what does work fairly quickly. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I've also heard, you know, if you're not having, if you're not having success in one area, like maybe if you sit over a water hole for a couple of days, that you definitely need to move on, you know. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I did that this past year. I moved three different times in one unit and then I ended up going to a whole nother unit before I got into elk and this spot I would went to the previous two years and had a bunch of elk there but they weren't there this time and I can't make them be there so you just got to move until you find them and not waste too much time in an area if you're not finding elk and the signs a week old you got to move to where they are and that you it's tough to figure out where they are but the more the more you know training stuff you cover whether that's behind the glass or that's by putting boots on the ground you know the better your odds are going to be at finding them right so i see i saw on your instagram that you were a prime archery guy 
and I've never actually got to shoot a prime yet. But what's what's the draw to that, and how is the? Uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. Is it is it quadruple cam or you know double cam or wh- what does that look like for you? Why do you enjoy shooting prime? So they have like a, they have dual cams on them, so it helps. Like so, it doesn't you can't get cam lean, so mm-hmm. it's it's hard for your bow to come out of tune. But the reason why I switched to prime. So, like I said, I worked at an archery shop. I could shoot whatever bow I wanted to. I shot them all, and I was a Matthews guy my whole life. And I remember when I got out of college because I had an old, old Matthews MG32. It was like 2002, and it was like 2013. I bought. I just went to this bow shop, and I was like, I want the new Matthews. The guy's like, You want to shoot some of the other ones? I'm like, Nope. I want the new Matthews. And I was like, oh, jeez. He was kind of like looking at me like, oh, jeez. Yeah. So I just bought it, and, you know, and it did well for me, no problems. And then I started working in an archery shop, and I still kind of leaned towards the Matthews and shot that. And it just it felt a little top-heavy for me, and, and they fixed a lot of that. Matthews is a great bow company. I have nothing bad to say about them. But the Prime's center grip, so they have the Synergy technology that – the bow grip is in the direct center of the bow, which helps for aiming. Because when you hold on the target, it helps you steady your aim a lot better than one that's the grip's lower on the riser, like every other bow on the market. Mm-hmm. But um, so that was the biggest draw for me. And the, but the biggest thing that I, you know, when I was again selling bows, what I would tell people is a lot of guys would come in, what are you shooting? And I'm like, all right, you know, may I shoot a prime or math at the time, whatever it was. Like, don't, who cares what I shoot? You need to shoot them all and figure out what feels best for you. Because everybody's different. Everyone likes a different feel. Um, all the bow manufacturers make great bows now. I, I do, like I said, I like prime for the center grip. I like them because they have a two-year um, warranty where on their strings and cables, so no one else does that that every two years they'll send you a new set of strings for your bow for free, um, which is awesome for the lifetime of the bow if you're the original owner. So that was a big kind of, you know, selling point for me there. And, and also their customer service was just, is, you know, second to none. Through that shop, I got to meet a lot of the different companies and, and be around them and stuff. And they're just a family owned shop. Um, and just like, they're just really customer based and that's a lot of the companies that either I work with or I purchase their products. I value the customer service just as much as I do the product. Yeah. No, I mean, that sounds like a really good deal they have going on there. I would, I would love to shoot one. I don't think I've actually ever seen a prime in an archery shop that I've been to. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, um, they're, there's, there's the dealers are getting a lot more of them now, but it's still depending on where you're at. Tough. I mean, where I live now, I moved back to my hometown. It's in North Central Pennsylvania. We don't have an archery shop anywhere near us, but uh, the nearest prime dealer is like an hour away. Mm-hmm. So it uh, takes it takes a little bit of a drive to get there. Right. So just uh, just wrapping up here, man. I just kind of want to get a uh, a feel for. Where do you see where do you see East meets West going? What are you excited about in the future? 
um, for the podcast, for the writing, you know, what, what, what gets you excited in that space? Well, I had, I'm just, like I said, I'm pumped on how it's been going so far. And my goal with it is to be able to expand it more and be able to help people from more of a personalized level Mm -hmm. right now with having a full-time job and, and doing all this stuff. I can't really like, I guess, consult with people and like actually help them with hunt planning. But I'd love to be able to do that. Like actually physically one-on-one help people be able to do that. And right now that's not an option to be able to do that time standpoint. That's my goal with it. And right now I just want to put out as many resources as I can. And whether that's through my own podcast or getting people on that that have their own resources that I can lead people to. It's all it's it's just about helping people get those experiences and I wanna put more people in a place that they can go on adventure style hunts and what again, whether that's uh first time elk hunting in the Rocky Mountains or that's hunting mountain whitetails in Pennsylvania, that's what I want to get out of this. Yeah. I think that's a great goal. So what what uh what do you do for full time? I mean, would you like to eventually get this to a full time a place where you could do it full time? Yeah, so I'm a I'm an environmental and safety engineer by trade. I went to school for safety management and um, work at a manufacturing facility. Nothing that does anything with hunting. <laughs> and but I I definitely. I'd, I'd love to see this go into something full-time that's my ultimate goal with it um as far as like from a personal standpoint is to be able to get to that level and i do i do believe that will happen and i will just because i'm not going to quit it until i get to that point and that's i just i have such a passion for it. like it's crazy that i can you know work a job 10 hours a day and, and you know, I, I, I work hard at it and I do, I try to do well at my regular job, but even when I'm tired and come home, I'm still motivated to do all the rest of the stuff, the writing and the, the podcast and the research, working on everything for hunting. Like my whole, that's where my passion is and it's for a lot of people, but you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that a reality. Yeah. No, I, I can definitely resonate with that. It's, it's so awesome because you know, you work eight or nine or 10 hours at the office and then I get home at like 6.30 after an hour com- a commute and I'm still like, man, I really want a podcast tonight. I wish I could do two podcast episodes tonight, you know, and like your stay up, you're editing, you're, you're dropping podcast episodes and talking to people that are giving you, you know, great insight and knowledge. And it's like, <laughs> but when, but I find myself at work, you know, having to drink two or three cups of coffee, but I get home and I just think about hunting for 30 seconds and I could stay up all night just talking to people about it. Yeah. yeah isn't that crazy? That's, that's, uh, it's, it's definitely not as glorious as everyone may think. I mean, as you know, with podcasts and stuff, it takes a ton of work Yeah. to, you know, line up guests, uh, come up with the topics, recording them, editing them, producing them, promoting them, going through the whole process to to produce a you know weekly or biweekly or whatever it might be you know podcast. It takes a ton of time up, and I'm you know I constantly struggle with trying not to get super um, obsessive with it to the point where I push everything else away in my life. Like as far as just personally trying to make sure I have personal time that has nothing to do with hunting or work. Yeah. Um, 
so that I mean I think that's important and something I you know still struggle with but uh, it's it's something that takes a ton of work but the, the biggest thing that I've learned that anybody that wants to do something you know whether it's in, in this industry or whatever it is you know c- connections and, and talking to people is the biggest thing that I've learned going to shows and just meeting people it's not don't be that you know, guy or girl that's just going up and trying to figure out a way to get free stuff that won't get you anywhere. That's a short term, you know, fix. But by just having relationships, and for me, it's easy because they're everyone's basically like minded in the hunting industry, and it's easy for to talk to people. And I just, you know, keep those relationships going, and that's I, I attribute a lot of, um, you know, the success of the podcast to that. And I'm not saying it's, you know extremely successful or anything like that but just it to get to where where i am and where i plan to go a, a lot of that has to do with the, the people that i meet yeah i mean what's super cool about podcasting is you know i would do it i would do it regardless even if i couldn't even put it out you know just to have the conversations with people that have done something you haven't done before you know, own a company that you're really interested in, you know, make great products. Like it's, it's cool because you're just sharing your conversations with people, you know, it's, you're showing, sharing an intimate conversation that you had with someone. And, you know, like what you said, going back to not trying to get free stuff or this and that, I mean, you'd be so surprised, like just providing people with value. Like, Hey, I want to, I want to work. I want to produce the content. I want to put a, distribute the podcast that has your name on it they feel almost a lot of times they feel almost obligated to give you something in your return. And you're just like, no, I really, really enjoy doing this. So, and I I know that's the same way for you. Just it, you know, it's something sustainable because it's something you would do if absolutely no one listened. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something you really have to have your morals in check and kind of figured out, you know, what you want out of it. And you, there's a lot more people than you think, you know, that, just want the the free stuff or the recognition and those those people might rise for a little while and they fall and because you you get burned out because you can't fake something for you know a long time and that's and what you said was a super good point about doing you do that even if you didn't have a microphone attached and that was like you know i kind of skipped over that a little bit at the beginning but when i wanted to I wanted to learn so much more about Western hunting and hunting in general from people that were way more knowledgeable than me. I just decided to throw a mic on and be able to record it to help others, you know, gain that. But I would call those people whether I was doing it or not. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's, that's awesome. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be respectful. I know you guys got to, you got to be up at 4am. So just closing up here, why or where can a listener connect with you if they want to check out the podcast they want to connect with you on social what are those yeah so uh my website is www.eastmeetswesthunt.com and you can find the podcast there some of my journal articles and also i have an online store there with some apparel items and then as far as the social channels my personal Instagram is just at Bo, B-E-A-U dot Martonic, M-A-R-T-O-N-I-K. And then the business account is at East Meets West Hunt. And you can find 
on Facebook under just Bo Martonic. Send me a friend request on there. Or uh, um, the East Meets West page on there is East Meets West Outdoors. For some reason, they wouldn't allow, allow me to do <laughs> East Meets West Hunt. So it's a little bit different than the Instagram page. But you can find all my stuff on there. The podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, you know, Stitcher, any place you can find podcasts. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it, and we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.